listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Today's scripture reading is Galatians 5, 13 through 26. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Oh, nuts. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enemy, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So a few days ago, I was standing in the kitchen when I heard an, an odd noise coming from the floor above me. It wasn't any of the cats. It wasn't any of the other people that live in our house. It, it was this sort of rhythmic, mechanical kind of glumphing sound, like doing this and then getting faster and faster. And I realized it was coming from the laundry room. And that can only mean one thing. The washer or the dryer, probably the washer, judging by how loud and heavy it sounded, is about to spin itself into self-destruction. So you've been there, right? You've put a a blanket that's way too big and it's gotten off-centered and the thing starts walking across the floor. So you know what to do. You've got to run up there and as, as quickly as you can, or down there if it's in the basement, wherever it is in your house, I don't know, run to it and hit the stop button before the balance being so off, you know, makes this thing just fall apart. And I was halfway there and I heard the sort of ding sound that indicated, oh, the internal sensors have, have dis, you know, have discovered that it, it, catastrophe is impending and we'll, we'll kill this thing, stop it right here, time out, stop spinning, fix the problem. It turned out to be one of honest uh, stuffed animals that had absorbed so much water, it weighed like 30 pounds. And on the final spin cycle, it was about to destroy this washing machine. I was very thankful for the, that automatic kill switch, and I think if such technology existed for churches, I would be right in line to install that right off the bat. Paul would, too, uh, for the church in Galatia, as they have spun themselves up and are just about to rip themselves apart uh, from the inside out. Actually, this passage we're looking at today kind of is that kill switch on the self-destructive tendencies of the church the churches, I should say, in southern Galatia. Uh, Their internal conflicts and disagreements have gotten these churches so off balance that they're splitting off from one another and threatening to tear the Messiah's family apart. 
from the inside out. Now, of course, that's a problem that only existed back then, certainly not applicable in any way to us or our churches today, right? So I first thought about calling this sermon, How to Destroy a Church in 15 Easy Steps, and then I realized we don't need lessons in that. That's what comes naturally, (laughs) and that's the problem. Actually, as we look at this passage, we we see Paul saying, yeah, that, that is the problem. The works of the flesh, the natural, unredeemed part of us, clawing and grasping for anything it can in order to feel important or satisfied or whatever, that's what leads to the destruction of churches or families, marriages, schools, dorm rooms, wherever you are, wherever you live, wherever you gather with other people and discuss, debate, or live out the ultimate things in life, you're prone to getting off balance and spinning your group or your community into self-destruction if there isn't a kill switch, if you don't see the works of the flesh. Now, a couple of years ago, two years ago, we walked through this exact same passage, uh, 13 through 26, uh, but we took 12 sermons to cover the whole thing. I'm not going to include all of that content into one sermon, so I'm going to be a little selective here. Back when we covered this in our series called Life Life in the Spirit, you can go to faithchurchindy.com and search for that and find it. We mostly focused on the fruit, the practices of unity that Paul talks about. Today, I'm going to focus on the works of the flesh, the practices of disunity, alive and well in our church and in churches around the world. It's going to be a real uplifting sermon this morning as we focus on the flesh and self-destruction. So if you're ready for that, uh, let's jump in. We're going to start in Galatians 5. And as we make our way through this passage, or I shouldn't say through it, but kind of dipping in and out of it, I mean, we're going to ask a few questions. What's going on? What's wrong with this church? How did it get that way? And what's the remedy? What's Paul's paradoxical remedy for a church threatening to rip itself to pieces. All right, Galatians 5. Uh, I want to look at two verses at the beginning and the end, verse 15 and verse 26. Uh, These two verses help us understand what's going on in the churches there. This is kind of like listening in on half of a phone call when you can only hear, you you know, the side of the person in the room. Uh, If what they're saying is pointed enough, you can kind of assume what's happening on the other end of the line by what's being said that you can overhear. That's what we're doing with these two verses, listening into Paul's side of the conversation to get a sense of what's going on in the churches in southern Galatia. Verse 15, Paul says, you know, um, in contrast to verse uh, 14, love your neighbor as yourself, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you won't be consumed by one another. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. These two verses give us a picture. They're not, they're not thrown in there just as general advice. This give us a, these give us a picture of what's going on in these churches in southern Galatia, biting and devouring one another. However literally you want to take this text, it's probably not mutual cannibalism. Oh, come on. You guys don't like cannibal jokes? Yeah, this church costs an arm and a leg to join. It's not, all right, fine, I'll stop trying. It's not mutual, but it's probably something more than just sitting on opposite sides of the worship center scowling at each other, right? Or, you know, I used to sit over there, 
but I'm kind of not okay with some people that also sit over there, so I'm going to sit over here. It's a little more than that, biting and devouring one another. Uh, Verse 26, uh, becoming conceited, glorying in empty, worthless things, or trying to score points in a social ranking system that has no value in and of itself, provoking one another, envying one another. Whatever's going on in these churches, it at least from Paul's language, seems to imply that they are breaking down into factions, and they are almost at the point, if not already past the point, of violent interaction between groups, biting and devouring. You know, you don't have to be around churches very long to know that this kind of infighting is fairly common. Provoking and envying, ranking themselves up and against each other, trying to to posture this group against that group. Well, there's more people in this one than there is in that one. They're they're provoking and envying each other and will, without a doubt, end up destroying the unity of these churches around the gospel and, of course, in so doing, destroy any sort of unified witness to the community around them. I actually grew up in a faith community a lot like what I'm describing I was reading one, uh, one commentary about this passage, and the author was saying, you know, it's not that hard to imagine uh, one church, you know, th- these were house churches, right, 20, 30, 40 people, maybe max, spread out throughout a city. It's not hard to, to imagine, okay, there's this house church here that's like, you know what, we've really thought this through, or, or we, we heard directly from the teacher, and so we've put these things into practice, and I know that the next church over, the next street over, they're not necessarily, you know, they're not all the way there yet. But we're going to put our energy into making sure that that we do things the right way and that our members and that our kids know that we're the ones doing things the right way. Well, the church over there, like, I mean, I'm not saying they're not Christians, but if they were, wouldn't they be with us? Wouldn't they have come to the same conclusions we did? I grew up in small town Iowa, and that's exactly what it looked like. The four or five really good gospel-preaching churches in the town I grew up in, spent more time and energy making sure that we understood how we were right and the other churches were wrong, whether they were the Presbyterians or the Methodists or whatever, so much so that the churches just spent all of their energy kind of arguing with each other, not trying to reach the community for Jesus. See, it doesn't take much before a church or churches in an area begin to define themselves in distinction from one another instead of around what we're really oriented around. If you bite and devour one another, you're going to eat each other up. What do you expect, Paul says? Now, these two verses, 15 and 26, are important, of course, because they give us a picture of what's going on in the church in Galatia, but they also remind us that everything in between these verses— uh, verses, you know, 16 on all the, all the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, while certainly good, general, ethical, you know, mandates or advice for us, it is also written to a specific church at a specific time with specific problems. That's why every vice that Paul condemns and every virtue that he applauds have to do with the practices that either destroy or create unity. That's the problem. So his remedy is addressing that 
problem. Sometimes we come to this passage, this is kind of a pet peeve, just as sort of like general ethical advice. This is not an article, it's a letter. It's written to some people who are dealing with some real issues, and Paul's giving them real advice. So, all right, with that understanding of what's going on in the churches, this biting and devouring and provoking and envying and empty glorying, how did they get there? How did they get there? That's where I want to look at the, the list of the works of the flesh. It begins in verse 19, but we'll take a running start at it and pick it up in verse 16. Uh, Paul begins this sort of paragraph saying, but, you know, but I say, in contrast, but I say, in contrast to the previous verse, you know, if you bite and devour, you'll consume each other. But I say, not that. Let's go this direction instead. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, live in accordance with the Spirit's direction, the Spirit of the Son, he how Paul refers to the Spirit earlier in this letter, you will not gratify the desire, the, the overwhelming desires of the flesh. Verse 17, he sets up this opposition, this contrast, this dichotomy. The desires of the flesh are to be against the Spirit. The desire of the Spirit is to be against the flesh, so that each one keeps you from doing what the other would have you do. If you are one who, in verse 18, he says, led by the Spirit, that's not an if, that's a, that's a because, that's a sense you are, one who has come to the Messiah, you are led by the Spirit. If you try to put yourself back under the flesh, under the law, if you try to live out the law as your source of justification instead of your faith, you will be in this, you'll be in a stalemate between the old, unredeemed part of yourself and the redeemed guidance of the Spirit warring within you, and you won't be able to do what either one is calling you to do. Don't put yourself back under the flesh, in other words. Because if you're under the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're not under the realm of flesh and flesh trying to justify itself. So line yourself up with, keep in step with the Spirit. He'll go on to say, but not before showing what this contrast of unredeemed humanity versus redeemed humanity looks like lived out in a church like the churches in southern Galatia. So, verse 19, the works of the flesh. Now, I should point out, Paul thinks these things are fairly obvious to anyone with half a brain. The works of the flesh are evident, he says. They're obvious. When you see them, you know them. You know them when you do them. Even if you're trying to tell yourself, like, well, that's just what everybody does, or I'm just trying to have a little bit of fun, or hey, you got to do what you got to do if you're going to defend the truth. You know it when you see it. So there's eight in the middle I want to spend the most time focusing on, but let's deal with the ones on the sides first. Verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Paul starts with three general terms for how we uh, distort and abuse the gift of physical intimacy and connection with other people. How we take what's designed for one particular context within the covenant of marriage, and we take it and we, we try to get out of it, out of its context, uh, out of its context, whatever uh, sort of sense of connection we can for ourselves. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. Then he lists two vices that would have resonated with the Jewish audience, even if they don't particularly resonate with us. Verse 20, idolatry and sorcery. 
This is the vices of those who, who turn to other powers than the one God uh, to protect them, to explain the world to them, to make sense of tragedy and calamity or, or blessing and, and prosperity, right? Those words don't really resonate with us, um, but we do this in our time too when we say things like, hey, I'm just being open to whatever the universe would have for me. Like, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tune into love and embrace gratitude, and the universe will work things out. I hear that all over the place. At least, we, at least they had names for their false gods and fake powers. We just call it the universe. All right, jump to the end of the list. Verse 21. Last three things, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Actually, things like these applies to the entire list, but drunkenness and orgies. Both Jews and pagan moralists would have been against and were generally against these two things, mostly because drunkenness and wild parties is the context in which people are most easily exploited and dehumanized. When you've sunk into your own alcohol-induced stupor or put yourself in a position where everyone's spinning everyone else up into these other activities, and it's when it's easiest to dehumanize the people around you. That's the seven on the fringes. Let's talk about the eight in the middle. There's eight in the middle that are so closely overlapping, one author said it's kind of hard to get the analytical knife in between each of them to clearly differentiate them from each other. It's almost like Paul is just heaping these adjectives on top of each other, trying to describe these works of the flesh. He could have used two or three sort of general terms, but instead he gives us eight, illustrating the ways in which, in which this, these churches were tearing themselves apart. So, verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, sorcery, here's where it picks up. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. It's quite a list. And it progresses. It starts with a general hostility. Just sort of like, hey, I just, you know, naturally have sort of an argumentative spirit. Like, I care very much about the truth and making sure other people kind of get it, Right? starts with this general sort of nature of being opposed as your sort of predominant way of viewing the world. Then that leads to a state of angry discord where you're sort of always kind of a little bit off with others. Then that, that gets fueled by a fierce and jealous partisanship over disputed issues. No, no, no. I embrace this direction over against people who go the other way. And then rage, that anger, bursts into flame when you can't hold it in anymore. And then people set themselves up against each other to better themselves at others' expense. Well, our group, I want you to know, is actually faithful and true of that group. You can't listen to anything anyone there says. You know what that's like? Groups of the like-minded begin to coalesce around each other. They begin to demonize all those who dissent and think in different ways or believe in different ways or just don't see things the same way. And then the groups become established and entrenched and they break off from the rest. And when they're not actively fighting with each other, they're retreating into their corners to gnaw on their own resentment. Does it sound like the church you want to be part of? Why are so many of our churches like that? or workplaces, or communities, or schools, or families, or marriages? Why are so many of them like that? 
Now, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? In other words, you know, now what? If that's the issue going on in the churches in Galatia, this is what's, what led up to it, then what's the remedy? What's Paul's remedy for this flesh-driven, self-destructive spin cycle that the churches have gotten themselves into? Well, he lists four. Verse 13, he says, serve one another. Verse 16, walk by the Spirit. Verse 20. Uh, verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 24, remember your flesh has been crucified along with Jesus. We covered three of them in the sermon series a couple of years ago, so I'm not going to touch those again this morning, but I do want to look at verse 13. Turn back to Galatians 5:13. All of these need to be thought out and thought through and applied to the life of the community as a whole and the individual members of it. But for this morning, just verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers. He's repeating what he said in chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. For freedom Jesus set us free. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. Use your free, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In love, serve one another. Paul's primary remedy for a fractured church is his most effective means of curtailing the practices of disunity alive and well in these churches and in our own and in the churches of the people we love is to embrace a paradox Embrace the paradox of free service, free subjugation. Embrace the paradox of the freely chosen limit to your freedom for the sake of someone else. Paul's been arguing in this whole letter that once someone comes to faith in, in Jesus, the Messiah, whether they are Jew or not a Jew, they're not under obligation to live under the Mosaic law, the Torah. That's not the pattern that guides the life of a member of the family of God anymore. Now the, the pattern for living is the life of the Messiah himself. The Messiah, Jesus, who was fully free and yet chose to voluntarily limit himself by becoming human, by embracing the role of a servant on our behalf, by taking onto himself our slavery to sin so that we could be free. And now we're free from slavery, free from slavery to sin, free from the dark forces of evil that are behind it, and so we are now free to choose who and what we serve. Everybody serves somebody. There's no getting around that fact. Everybody worships something. Everybody serves somebody. So the question in this church needs to confront is, okay, who are you going to serve? You and your faction? Everyone, someone, no one. Paul says the solution to the remedy for your church that is ripping itself apart is for everyone to freely choose to serve one another. 
in love. I'm emphasizing that word serve because it's the word, you, the word here, it's, it's the word used to describe an in, someone whose entire life is fully committed to the life of another. When that commitment is voluntary, we translate it serve or servant. When that commitment is involuntarily, involuntary, we translate it as slave, slavery. In the context of this passage, he said, you're called to freedom. You get to choose who or what you're going to let yourself be enslaved to. That's why it's a paradox, embracing the paradox of free slavery, free service, freely chosen limits to your freedom to choose because you've chosen to serve someone else out of love. See, this, this is Paul's remedy for this, this flesh-driven dissolution of the common unity of the churches in southern Galatia. Each person needs to decide. Each church as a whole needs to say, here's what we're about. Using our freedom to choose to give up our freedom because we're serving one another. It's absolutely critical because, look, if, if you went to a church where even half the people, even a fourth of the people lived according to this list of the works of the flesh, it would be a, be a dangerous place, a miserable place to worship and absolutely disunited. I mean, think about it this way. If you're looking, if you're shopping for a new house or you want to move into a new apartment, you want to move into a neighborhood or into a building characterized by people who live by these 15 vices or the nine fruit that come a few verses later. It's an easy choice. So Messiah's people are to live radically different. That's why Paul is telling them, after telling them, hey, you are free, he says, now choose slavery. Choose service. A service fueled by love. You know, we often look at verses like this, you know, for freedom Christ has set us free, and back in verse 1, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. You are, uh, you are called to freedom, and we look at these verses as if simply embracing our freedom in Christ were the point. Like, that's the end. That's the goal. That's what we're shooting for. That's the solution to our problems. But freedom in Christ was never the goal. Freedom was never the goal. Freedom in Christ is the means to a greater goal. It's just the fuel for a better choice to freely choose to serve one another in love. That doesn't negate our freedom. It directs our freedom to a higher purpose. It's like the athlete, you know, who chooses to restrict to restrict their freedom and live their life entirely dedicated to a single sport. Every one of those athletes is free to eat whatever they want and practice whenever they feel like it and train whenever the, you know, inspiration strikes. But if they exercise that freedom, they wouldn't be free to perform at the heights of human achievement that some do. You don't become free to do a backside double cork 1080 if you live somewhere where there's no snow and you never go out on the slopes. But because you voluntarily choose to limit 
your freedom of choice down to just a few things you've decided. This is doing these things is what is going to get me to a greater, more important goal than my freedom to just do whatever I want. And then you become actually free to perform, to be, to do what you know you are called to do. It's the same with us. Freedom isn't the goal. Freedom is the means by which we pursue the goal. It's the fuel for the real goal. You are free from serving sin. That freedom has come because of Christ. You are free from serving sin. Now you are free to choose. Who are you going to serve? You are free from all of those activities and actions that dehumanized the people that you love and the people around you, the people in your community, the people you care about. And now you're free to choose, if you want to, to live in such a way as to rehumanize them. So you were free. You're called to freedom. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh through love, serve one another. See, so it doesn't matter where you are in the, the social hierarchy. It doesn't matter how wealthy or how poor you are, whether you're the pastor or a pauper. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're the husband or the wife or the parent or the child, if you're single or married, if you're an elder or a volunteer, if, if you're an American or otherwise, if you're a Democrat or a, or a Republican, you are called, we are, I am called to, out of love, serve Voluntary, voluntarily, willingly curtail my own freedom in order to serve you. And you all are called to do the same for me. What, what happens when an entire church lives out their calling to embrace service to one another in love? Well, it certainly doesn't look like the 15 works of the flesh. It looks a whole lot more like, like some spirit-driven fruit is growing. Like, like, I don't know, if I just had to come up with a list, it'd be something like love and joy and peace, or maybe patience and kindness and goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control or any one of the other virtues that Paul talks about in any of his other letters. Which neighborhood would you rather move into? It's a, it's a paradox of freely chosen self-restraint. It is the only thing that keeps a church or any church or any community or relationship, marriage, family, whatever, from spinning itself into self-destruction. So what are we going to do about it? ask anybody who works with a lot of churches, they will tell you actually faith is, is a fairly united, it's a healthy church. That's largely because of the humility of our elders who lead us and a huge legacy, of course, uh, from our pastor emeritus, Tom Macy. Uh, faith is, is a fairly unified place, a healthy place to worship and grow, but that doesn't mean we're not without our problems internally and how we relate to the broader evangelical culture. I mean, we too need to start to hear when things like these works of the flesh begin thumping around. (laughs) So we can quick hit the switch and say, no, 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 no. That's going to spin us up into self-destruction. We're not not going that direction. 
I mean, this is actually something we do. We have to guard against the works of the flesh in our midst. If it were automatic that everyone who follows Jesus lived out the fruit of the Spirit without any effort or having to try about it, you know, if we never had to worry about battling temptations to indulge our anger against other people that we claim to love and care about, well, then Paul wouldn't have told us, he wouldn't have stressed that we have to walk by the Spirit, keep in step by the Spirit, choose to do these things. But he does. It's not automatic. We have a a role to play. We have to guard against the works of the flesh in ourselves and in others. But we also are responsible to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in ourselves and in others. That's largely what the other sermon series I've referred to uh, is talking about. See, as a a middle-aged suburban white guy dad, a lot like Jeff, except you're a little more middle-aged than I am. We share a common goal. Our highest goal in life we have embraced is to have the healthiest lawn on the block. This is what white dads do, right? I'm only half joking because when a lot of your job is abstract and like moving email and information around and talking to people, like you just want to be able to point to something and say, look, I made my intentions manifest concretely in the world right there in that, that lawn. And spring is coming, I've heard. And with spring comes weeds. How do you get rid of weeds? Well, you can dump a whole, bo- uh, you know, a whole bottle's worth of caustic chemicals on them, and I've done it, and I'll do it again this spring. But the best way to get rid of weeds everyone tells me, is plant a healthy lawn, right? Thick, strong grass, and there's no place for the weeds to grow. They can't get any fuel. There's no, there's no access to them. It's, it's the same in a church or any collaborative team or in your work environment or school or in a family, any group of people united around a common goal. If you plant strong, healthy, vibrant, growing fruit, you're like 90% of the way there. Works of the flesh just don't have room to grow. Anger can't grow in ground that has already been sown and taken over by love. Divisions can't grow in ground that's already sown with patience. Rivalries and dissensions can't grow in ground that's filled with goodness already. Enmity and strife and all the rest, they can't grow where self-control and gentleness and humility already dominate the landscape. Paul says in your church, in your home, in your marriage, with your kids, with your friends, you're free to decide what you want to grow, what you want to fertilize, the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? The question basically boils down to this. What are you going to use your freedom for? You are free if you follow the Messiah Jesus by faith. You are already free from the obligations of a moralistic law code. That's what the whole letter's been about. And now you are free to pattern your life after the life and death of Jesus, the Messiah. Or you're free to... Indulge the flesh with its desires. We know what that does. You're also free to choose through love to serve one another, to give yourself in service to others. Because the desires of your flesh have been crucified along with Jesus. (laughs) So, what are you going to use your freedom for? 
now that you are free from the works of the flesh, you are free to grow this fruit at faith, at home, wherever you go. What are you going to use your freedom for? Let's pray. Father, we know what you have called us to use our freedom to do, and yet we find that freedom so difficult to exercise. The works of the flesh seem to give us a, almost a guarantee that we will get, at least now, what we want, what we know we can only find in you, and yet it's so much more immediate here and now. It's so natural. It feels so good and right. Father, may the Spirit of your Son reign in our hearts, that we may both desire and do the fruit you've called us to. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.